Welcome back to the Core EM Podcast. Core content for anyone, anywhere, and just in time. This is the official podcast of the NYU Bellevue EM Residency Program. I'm Anand Swami Nathan. And I'm Jenny Beckesme. Jenny, what are we going to talk about today? So, Swami, I'm not sure if you remember, but way back when you invited me on to one of my very first Core EM podcasts, it was, talk, it was to talk about some tips that I took away from one of our airway workshops. Oh, I'll never forget it. You were such a youngin' back then, so green <laughs> with the podcasting. So excited to just be there. Asking questions like, can I use the internal mic on my laptop? And no, no, you can't do that. No. Can. <laughs> that was a long time ago. And, and there were some great practical tips in there. But, you know, we've kind of come full cycle. So it's been a whole year and now our conference is turned over and we're back to talking about airway this month in conference. And we did a couple of talks. We did some workshops. So what is it that you wanted to focus on today with the airway? Yeah, so airway skills are one of those critical defining skill sets in our specialty. So we do try and kind of dip back into it over the course of the year. I mean, we kind of get to it usually every uh, June, July, but we have little workshops and stuff to just kind of refresh everyone's skills. Um, this week in conference, we had a lecture from one of our PGY2 residents, Ryland Pace, that brought us really back to some of the very basics of airway. And I think that this is a really good time of year to talk about this because as all of our classes are moving up into their new roles, at least in our shop, we get a new set of primary intubators in the ED and we want to make sure that they get some of these basics down. Yeah, and the basics are not just good for the junior residents. They really are good for everybody. It's that space repetition. It's the reminders of basic things that are important in order to manage the airway properly. And, you know, this is a pretty exciting time of year for us in education because we're turning over, we're getting fresh interns, people who haven't been ruined by bad lectures and bad conferences, and we can sort of shape and, and meld them into great emergency physicians. So I'm really excited for a new class, and I think it's a great time to harken back to these basic skills so that everybody comes in with it's sort of a common experience or what they need to bring to the bedside every time for an airway. Absolutely. So Ryland started out by reminding us of the importance of first pass success in intubation. He looked at an article from Academic Emergency Medicine from 2013 that looked at the incidence of adverse events in patients with one or more intubation attempts. Adverse events included accidental extubation, aspiration, cardiac arrest, yikes, cough leak, dental trauma, dysrhythmia, esophageal intubation, hypotension, laryngospasm, mainstem intubation, oxygen desaturation, and pneumothorax. Big list. They found that in patients who were successfully intubated on the first attempt, they had an incidence of adverse event of 14.2%. Now, that's already a pretty high number to start with, but, you know, that was kind of a, a smattering of uh, airway no-nos that happened, right? I mean, I'm not sure that cardiac arrest and dental trauma are exactly equivalent, but this is how the study was done, 14%. Now, what gets scary is that the incidence of adverse events climbs with each attempt at intubation. So each time that we don't control the airway and we need to have a second or a third attempt, it goes up. So patients who had two attempts had an adverse event rate of about 47%. If they had three attempts, it was an incidence of 63.6%. So think about that. It goes 14 to 47 to 63 and a half. I mean, that's incredible. Just a reintubation or reattempting at intubation two times increases the risk of one of these adverse events by 50%. It's crazy. So this really drives home the point that we need to do everything we can to get this right the first time. So we need to maximize our chances at that first pass success. So that brings us down to preparation. Absolutely. And I think one of the 
things you don't want to do here that I often hear people say is, well, if the first attempt is the most important one, let's put the most experienced intubator to do that intubation. And the reason I hate that is because what you'll end up with is one really good intubator and the rest of the residents will suck or the rest of the faculty and everybody else is not going to be very good at it. So I don't think we always need to be putting this in the hands of the most experienced person, but we need to supervise appropriately. So if the person supervising is experienced, that can overcome a lot of the limitations of a new intubator. Now, many EDs are using pre-intubation checklists, but if you don't, or if you're looking for an alternative or you need some kind of a checklist, the one that Ruben Strayer cooked up on EM updates is excellent. It's had many revisions. And the other one that I want to put out there, I was just looking at the podcast today. Scott Weingart just rolled out a new one about two weeks ago. So that's another possibility. I really like Ruben's. I like Scott's as well. Both of these give you some ideas of things that you need to always be looking at, some reminders, things that often get left by the wayside. And remember that Checklists are not a crutch. They're just another tool to help us to do the best job we can. And preparation with this checklist is really important. To quote Tintinelli, the textbook says, the inexperienced laryngoscopist's most common reasons for failure, inadequate equipment preparation, and poor patient positioning arise before using the laryngoscope. So preparation is key. Before you get the laryngoscope in your hand, make sure you've gone through your checklist. Make sure you've done everything from a preparation standpoint to get the patient ready. Exactly. So first you start with examining the patient. Think of why you're intubating. Look in their mouth, look at their neck. While the evidence shows we aren't great at predicting a difficult airway, there are a few mnemonics that some people use for the patient exam that can help us to not overlook something obvious. These are the moans and the lemon mnemonics, and we'll have links to these in the show notes. I know, Swami, you're not a big fan of these. Yeah, I'm not. And actually, something that you said that I, I not that I'm correcting you, but I'm going to change your verbiage a little bit. Difficult airway. We should call them challenging airways. I'm glad that you brought it up. I know that was a plant. I planted you to say difficult airway. <laughs> They're challenging airways. And I think that we should change the verbiage there because difficult sort of suggests that oh, if you don't get it, don't worry about it. It was difficult. Challenging, I think, is a better way to look at these. Now, with those specific mnemonics, the moans, the lemon mnemonic, to evaluate whether the patient is going to be a difficult anatomical intubation, I just think they fall short. I don't think they give you what you want. And there are a number of studies that show that you can't predict always which patients are going to be anatomically difficult. So Jenny, I know we've talked about this before when you've intubated and I've been supervising you, just assume that every airway is going to be challenging anatomically. Mm -hmm. So have all of your backups prepared. Make sure you have a plan in place of what you're going to do. And if you go at all of them as being challenging, most of them will just be absolutely fine. And when you do run into that challenging anatomic airway, it's not going to be a big deal because you're going to be completely prepared for it. Right, because if you mentally prepare for it each and every time, it's it's obviously it's not the same as doing it, but it gets you as close as you're going to get to doing it. Just Absolutely. mentally prepare every time. Okay, so while you're evaluating your patient, you, you can also prep them properly. So this means getting at least one, ideally two working IVs, just in case one goes awry. You're going to place them on the monitor and position them well on the stretcher with a good ear to sternal notch position. And then pre-oxygenate them with double pre-ox. So this means a nasal cannula under a non-rebreather. This works great because then when you take the mask off to perform your laryngoscopy, you can just leave the nasal cannula in place for that apneic oxygenation, the O's up the nose. Absolutely. That two IVs thing is really important too. So I can still remember a case I had when I was a junior attending. One of my really good third years was intubating. It was a guy that we only had one sort of tenuous IV in. I pushed my intubation meds. So I pushed my rock, I pushed my ketamine, and then I kind of turned around so that I could help her on the 
other side of the bed to give her the tube. And when I turned around, the uh, IV tubing caught on my belt and I tore the IV out of this guy. So now he is rocked and ketamine and he is totally out and we have no access on the guy. So we quickly placed an IO. (laughs) It was not a big deal, but... I just, you know, that's a heart stopping moment you do not want to have. No, it was it, we were not very happy about that at all. So if you can get two good lines in, that really is optimal. Uh, you know, if you can only get one in, you really should consider having the IO ready to go. You can always place that IO after you give them a little bit of a sedation medication or, you know, IOs aren't that painful. You can just do it before you go. But have two access points. It really is going to be beneficial. And next, you want to check all your equipment. You want a double suction setup and you want to have your BVM ready. I like to connect the entitled CO2 monitor to the bag right away for speedy tube confirmation after the intubation. And then, of course, you're going to check the airway equipment itself. Check your tube, inflate the balloon, check for any leaks, confirm that the light on your laryngoscope works. I can't tell you how many times I've seen that go wrong. And make sure you have all of your rescue devices and your backup devices available, not just, I know where they live in the department, at the bedside ready to go. It's also really important to talk about your whole plan with your team. I find that this really builds their confidence in you, but it also builds your confidence in yourself. Verbalizing the steps out loud of what you have done for the patient thus far and what you will do in the event of failure makes you and everyone around you calm and ready. Yeah, and you know, this is where another place to change your verbiage. I used to say, if we can't intubate, I have a knife ready to do a crike. Now I say, when we can't intubate, this is what we're going to do next. And at first I thought this might really make people nervous to be like, wait, what do you mean you can't intubate? Why are we we preparing for this? What I found is that most people are really, really feel good about the fact that we have our backups in place. So when direct laryngoscopy fails, we have video laryngoscopy. We have a hyperangulated blade. When that fails, we have a bougie ready. And ultimately, if all of those fail, I have a knife, a bougie, and an ET tube in hand, and I can do a crike. And I found that the nurses and the rest of the staff really feel much better about that airway because they know exactly what that plan is. Right. And then I think there's also something to be said for verbalizing the plan that way will make your team hold you to that plan in the event of that emergency. So you have already told them, I'm going to do this, then I'm going to do that, and then I'm going to do that. And so if you find yourself being like, oh, no, I'm just going to try and take one more look. I'm just going to try and take one more look. No, not that you're going to do that, Swami. But If you were somebody who was going to do that, your team can say, no, this was the plan. You told us this was the plan. Yep. And you have a share mental model, which is always nice because what you don't want is someone to be like, wait, why are you cutting the neck? Why are we doing that? So it's nice to that everybody's on the same page with everything. Exactly. Okay. So in the spirit of core content EM and prepping all of our new juniors for their new role, let's go through how I, as your resident, would prove to you that I am ready to intubate this patient. Cool? Yeah, absolutely. Great idea. Okay, Swami, this patient needs to be intubated for airway protection. She came in with a significantly depressed mental status, and we're concerned for some kind of spontaneous intracranial hemorrhage. She is on the monitor. I have placed her on nasal cannula and non-rebreather mask for pre-oxygenation. She has two working IVs. I have the BVM here ready to bag if needed and ready for after intubation. I have two Yankauer suctions ready. I have the stretcher at the best height for me, and the patient has a roll of sheets behind her shoulder to put her in a good ear to sternal notch position. I plan to use DL as my primary method, and I have the glide scope next to me as my backup method. I have looked in her mouth, and I examined her neck, and I don't see any reason based on her anatomy to expect this to be a challenging airway. But, just in case, I have the bougie here. Additionally, I'd like to have one of my assistants here holding this LMA. 
I plan to look with my DL, and when I'm unable to get a good view, I'll switch to the glide scope. If at any point or when she desaturates, we're going to stop and bag the patient, and if the BVM is unsuccessful, we will insert the LMA to ventilate the patient. And as always, Swami, when things go awry, you have the scalpel in your pocket ready to perform the, ca- the crike in case of an emergency. That's pretty good. I, I probably would let you intubate after that. Okay, great. Thanks, Swami. Now, despite the best preparation, some things can go wrong. The scariest to me is the post-intubation hypotension or cardiovascular collapse. Swami, do you routinely have pressors on hand for your intubations? So I think it all depends on the situation. If the patient is hypotensive or they're kind of on that cusp, they're like that metastable, you know, 100 over 60, I probably will have vasopressors ready to go, but I'm not a big fan of push-dose pressors. I don't love the physiology behind this. I think in a pinch, if you don't have a a presser ready to go, a push-dose is fine. What I'd rather actually have is a drip that's ready to hang. In patients who are already hypotensive, I'm going to start the drip before I decide to intubate them because I know that their pressure is going to drop. In those patients who are on the tenuous side, I probably will have the drip hooked up and tell the nurse we're not going to start it yet. But we expect that the blood pressure may drop, in which case we're going to have to start that. Usually this is either going to be norepinephrine or epinephrine that I'm going to have hanging and ready to go. So the answer to the question is really, it depends on the situation. If the patient's hypotensive, I'm starting the presser before we intubate. If the patient is kind of on that cusp, then I've got the presser ready to go. And I'm probably going to start it after intubation, knowing that the pressure is likely going to drop. So I see a lot of people sometimes with the push-dose neosinephrine for the intubation. What are your thoughts on that? So, you know, I'm not a big fan of push-dose neo for a number of reasons. I think from a purely physiologic standpoint, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. And, you know, when we talk about the use of vasopressors, when to use which one, we're really going on a physiologic basis. We're not going on an evidence base. We don't have big randomized control trials to tell us which presser to use in which situation. Phenylephrine or neosinephrine is a, a pure alpha agonist. It doesn't really give you much beta activity. And most of my patients are not being intubated because I gave them something to vasodilate them. They're being intubated because they're hypoxic, they're hypotensive, they've got another problem, sepsis, something like that. And so I really want to give them something that both gives them a little bit of peripheral squeeze, but also improves the function of the heart. So epinephrine and norepinephrine make a little bit more sense to me. A lot of our anesthesiologists will use neosinephrine, uh, particularly in cases where they've given the patient an induction agent and the blood pressure drops. That kind of makes sense to me because the agent you gave them first, vasodilated them. So why not give them that neosinephrine to constrict those peripheral blood vessels? But that's not really what we're dealing with. So I don't use it. I think the reason people reach for phenylephrine often is because it comes in a little prepackaged push-dose syringe. If we had the same thing for epinephrine, we'd probably be giving epinephrine instead. And, you know, it's easy enough to make up a dirty epi drip or dirty epi pushes. But again, I would rather just put the patient on an infusion of a vasopressor than to start them on just push-dose. Sure, that makes sense. Okay, so to wrap it up, first, first pass success is really important. The incidence of adverse events rises dramatically with each successive intubation attempt. Second, maximize your chances of success with systematic, thorough preparation. Check the patient and check your equipment every time. Position well and pre-oxygenate and use a checklist to help make sure you're doing this every single time. And then last, Verbalize your plan, your backup plan, and your backup backup plan. Saying it out loud will make you more likely to do it and make your team hold you accountable for doing it. It also builds confidence in you from both yourself and your team. Absolutely. Those are great take-homes. I especially love that last one of verbalizing, making sure that everyone's got a shared mental model and knows what to expect. Well, that's all for the Core EM podcast this week. 
Come on over and check out the site at coreym.net. We've got a ton of great core content emergency medicine. We'll have a core post up this Wednesday and a journal update up on Thursday. Visit us on Facebook and like us if you like the site. Follow us on Twitter where our handle is at core underscore em. And we'll see you next week.